Hi, and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour uh, for The Thing. Uh, not that thing, the other thing. No, not the original thing. The second thing's not sequel, remake, prequel thing. That thing. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> uh, and I'm joined by... <laughs> Uh, which may be one of the reasons why this film hasn't gone so well at the box office, but I, I jump ahead. Um, I'm joined by uh, uh, Matt Walt. How are you, Matt? Oh, very good. Yeah, keeping it uh, keeping it real here. <laughs> and Ty, how are you? Doing really well. So uh, where are you guys both at at the moment? I'm obviously sitting here in Sydney still, but only for another few more days. Where are you guys in the world? Uh, I'm at my house right now in... Uh uh, middle, uh, mid Eastern Virginia in near Charlottesville, Virginia. And Ty? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm actually in my home in, uh, in Chandler, Arizona, which is a suburb of Phoenix. It's just cooling off, uh, this time of year. So it's very pleasant as opposed to being a scorching, burning, hot <laughs> desert. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, it was lovely and warm here yesterday, isn't today, which is why I'm going to leave the country. Um, so, look, uh, we're going to review The <laughs> Thing, but we're also going to look at The Thing, not that thing, the other one. And um, we're going to also discuss uh, maybe some structural stuff that's happening uh, around box office and whether that's impacting or not by the way the visual effects are done. Um, as we like to do each show, we're going to start off by a quick sort of what people thought of the show, but uh, the film, sorry, but I'm going to actually ask you to comment on both things if we can. So because they annoyingly named The Thing the same in 2011 as they did back in 82 with Carpenter's Thing, I think we're going to have to just call it Carpenter's The Thing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't see the other way around that. And I, I have to say, I, I find the excuse that they couldn't think of any name better than The Thing to be one of the worst um, <laughs> excuses in history for what is an... I mean, you know, this may as well be called Shawshank Redemption The Thing for how badly it's named. But anyway, um, I also want to just also point to one thing by way of, I guess... Um, <laughs> Uh, how can I put this? I, I, I mean, we, we tend to be fairly critical on the show, um, but my thing is I actually know some people in, in this film, uh, and so uh, I just get that out of the way. So they're kind of friends. So um, I do a lot of work with um, Natch Edgerton and Joel Edgerton, and I know Joel, and so point blank, I'm not going to criticise their performance because I think Joel's terrific. I've always thought Joel's terrific. He's friggin' awesome. Um, but I just, you know, obviously say some of them to say, well, that's all very well and good, but you know you know those guys. So... Um, Yes. So apart from any criticism of uh, the actors, what did you think of the film? Um, well, I'm, I mean, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of, um, of the 1982 version of the thing. And for this show, I went back and I actually watched the, the 19, I believe, 51 Howard Hawks original version called The Thing from Another World with uh, James Arness as this giant uh, evil vegetable uh, thing. Um, which was actually set in the North Pole. Uh, and then I went back and, of course, I watched the Carpenter version again, which I just think is such a great film uh, on so many levels. It's it's interesting how uh, it gets, like you were saying, Mike, it's kind of, uh, or we were saying before the show, we were talking about how the... Um, the 1982 version when it came out wasn't a really big success although i i think i saw it in the theater when i was 12 years old i think i went to the cinedome in uh, southern california in orange uh, orange um, the city of orange and and saw it and uh, really enjoyed it and uh, one of the reasons why i think that film the original carpenter version of the thing is such a success is you know the it's sort of the apex of 
all that kind of practical um, special effects work, the gore kind of effects. And it was the Rob Bottin did all the, you know, original character work and all the animatronics. And I have uh, several friends who work in, you know, practical effects. And they talk about the thing as being really like a seminal moment for them as a kid growing up in the way that maybe you know, Star Wars was for a lot of visual effects artists and, or, you know, or some movie and of that ilk. And, um, and, uh, it's interesting that they go back in this version of the thing, which is a, like you were saying, it's kind of confusing. It's technically like a prequel. It's the story that takes place before, uh, the Carpenter version in the timeline of that world. And it's what happens, I guess it was at the Norwegian base, uh, mm. which is sort of how the, the, carpenter version opens with this helicopter and these guys shooting this dog and they go back and they replicate some of those shots in this movie and so in this movie i thought uh you know it's it's uh it was fun to watch it was it had a nice um pace to it it felt like very much like the carpenter film sometimes almost too much like it um I thought it was interesting the use of some practical effects, but then augmenting that with the digital, and we can talk more about that in in and as we sort of go further into the show about specific parts in it. Um, but the only thing that I thought was really sort of um, wasn't quite working for the movie overall was I just in the um, in the original Carpenter version of the thing you have Kurt Russell, who's such a well known actor. Uh, even at that time, he was a famous child actor from you know way back in the early Disney films that he was in. And, you know, you look at Kurt Russell in the, in the 82 version. And I mean, that guy's got so much on-screen charisma. I was <laughs> joking around. I say he's got more charisma in like one hair on his beard than most, uh, actors have, um, you know, in terms of their on-screen presence. And he plays that kind of jocular kind of cowboy with the wry cynicism, kind of vibe and it works really well in the in the movie and in the current sort of iteration of the thing we kind of have this um uh, the female lead who is the american uh paleontologist or scientist who comes to sort of examine the thing and while she's not a bad uh, you know actress per se i just don't think she or any of the other actors in the film really have that kind of on-screen presence where you feel as an audience member really compelled to follow their story and really care about what happens to them in the way that I think you kind of felt more of that in the the Carpenter version. And so, you know, while I thought, you know, on a technical level, it was, you know, well-crafted and uh, I thought the script was okay and it really does dovetail very nicely into the 82 version. So it makes kind of a nice set of bookends, but I, I wonder on some level if, um, you know, I, 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 if it had never been made, I don't know that I would have missed it, I guess I would say. Yeah, I must admit, I watched it and kept on thinking, man, why didn't they make the prequel to uh, Escape from New York? Why don't we have Snake Plissken and how he lost the eye rather than <laughs> Snake before he lost the eye stranded? Yeah, in World you know. War Three or something. Uh, right? Yeah. Um, Ty, what did you think of the film? Well, I I, um, I I enjoyed the time that I spent in the theater. Sometimes it's important for me to, um, you know, take into consideration just how many movies I've seen and how my expectations oftentimes will will have an effect on um, you know how I how I see a picture. And on this particular day, and I had done a similar thing to what Matt had done. I'd, I'd gone back and watched the Carpenter film, which I also love, and uh, and watched not the entire uh, Hawks version, but enough of it to kind of refresh my memory. I actually remember that vividly as a child seeing it on late night television 
Um, and interesting enough, one of the one of the pieces that kind of transcends all three all three pictures is this notion of men trying to, to trying to figure out scale by standing. You know, they there's this kind of shot where everyone's out in the in the snow and they you know they line up and try to get a sense of like what are we dealing mm-hmm. with and they kind of they did that uh, again in in the carpenter version and now in this latest version I, I like that I, I there's something about that the man becoming the 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 lowest common denominator like what are we looking here at like how how can we make sense out of this and just by you know, trying to uh, establish the perimeter of the shape in the ice. You know, it, it it's sort of a just a kind of scary, unknown, iconic, you know, iconic moment. Um, so when I um, was finished watching uh, the earlier two pictures, I kind of went to this theater with a. I went to a morning show. It was a, a really nice theater, and I actually found the time in the theater to go very quickly, and I got some good scares, and I was kind of fascinated by aspects of the filmmaking and uh, certain decisions the director had made. But I think very much like Matt, um, I think the Kurt Russell character was, uh, was so able to galvanize the, the story um, in the Carpenter version because he's sort of an outsider and he sort of sees the, 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 the desperate situation in advance of everybody else. And I think there was an attempt to play with that theme a little bit. Different characters kind of say, wow, this could be a really bad thing in the new version. Um, there's a military component. You know, the pilot and his co-pilot are both uh, military people, modern day. Well, not modern day from today, but American modern soldiers as opposed to researchers. And they're supposed to um, kind of telegraph dread and what could really happen as, as this thing unfolds. But I didn't think there was one single lens by which to view the film in its entirety. And, and that piece was enough to uh, make the, the viewing experience um, un, unbalanced. And ultimately, it was hard to invest uh, deeply in the, in the trouble of the, you know, the, the plight of the characters, I think. Sorry, and if I might, the, the other thing I was thinking about, too, when I, after I saw this movie is I, I um, was a huge fan of uh, sort of during when I went to film school, I went back and watched all these old 1950s era science fiction movies. And there's a great book by um, the film writer, uh, critic Peter Biskind, where he talk. I can't remember the name of the book now, but he talks about, you know, all these 50s films and sort of the allegory that's that's happening in a lot of them where they're kind of. Uh, films that were being made around the time in the United States, anyway, of the McCarthy era, um, which was when you know it was you know called the Red Scare, and everybody was really afraid of all the um, you know communists, like communists invading the United States and communism or socialism becoming a part of you know American uh, society. And so there was movies like Them with the giant red ants and uh, ants. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, of course, you know, is a classic. And The Thing is another one that deals kind of with this, you know, uh, the thing from another world, the Hawks version, deals with that whole idea of, you know, paranoia that, you know, this thing can look like and mimic, you know, anybody uh, in the space. You don't know who's who. You don't know what's what. And, um you know, it's sort of like you don't know who's a commie <laughs> and who's not or whatever, um, or who's going to name names and who's not going to name names before the House and Un-American Activities Committee or whatever. And um, yeah, the, the other thing I, I think it was interesting, though, I was just going to say in the 80s version is, you know, the 80s version takes place kind of at the height of or the very sort of the, the burgeoning of and the public awareness of AIDS, right? And so they even have a scene in the 80s version, the, the Carpenter version, where they test 
uh, everybody's blood, right? And the blood mm. becomes the thing that you actually have to test. So there's this kind of biological horror or biological terror. And then in this version of the thing, it plays out in a similar way in terms of the, you know, it's, it's all about, you could go into the whole thing about how... <laughs> so I'm, you know, I'm looking for the gets... link to the tooth fillings as to the blood. Is that... <laughs> well, right, you... well... Well, that's what I'm saying is I don't know what the allegory is in the contemporary version of the thing. And in some ways, maybe that's kind of the most appropriate because uh, it almost seems like they don't – they aren't considering the film as functioning on that level. I question whether or not they're even considering an allegorical level on which this film could function. But uh, Oh, I see. You know, so the, the very lack other... of the us being able to draw a parallel with the teeth highlights the lack of depth of the – well, that points. that and that end also, I think you know the only other thing you could say is that you know whether it's this version of the thing, the '50s version or the '80s version, the whole idea of uh, you know a film and that this is sort of a remake of a film, although it's technically a prequel, but then that the thing itself is about the whole idea of simulacra, right? Like it's simulating and emulating, you know, the other people, and so you could do this whole kind of interesting you know, kind of nerdy film analysis where you could kind of get into the, the sort of self-referential you know, nature the, of the, the mimesis, the mimesis, the mimesis and the thematic nature of the film. Yeah. That it's sort of self-referential and whatnot. But I, I, I just, I don't think it's really functioning on that level. I don't See, think it quite works here's my, that way. Here's my point. I'll be slightly less intellectual about it. The 1998 film Psycho was a reconstruction of the 1960s Psycho, which led mm-hmm. me to say, Why? Why did you need to do that, Gus Van Sant? Like that just didn't, it just seemed pointless because there was no new voice brought to it. It was just, a, it was just like they were refilming the film. Um, and the trouble with this film for me is that it's trying to be two things at once. It's trying to be a sequel and a different film from Carpenter's, but it's almost exactly the same as Carpenter's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I say again, why? Like what, where is the new voice and the new point of view on this uh, and I don't think it's enough to just say, I liked Carpenter's film so much that I wish I worked on it, so I made the chapter that you didn't see that went before it. Because, yeah. But it, yeah. it, is, it feels so much like they want them to dovetail together. And when you read that on set they had a laptop with like a million stills from the film, <laughs> well, that's, right. that's all true, and that's great. But in much the same way that an artist imitating another artist's style you always say, well, why don't you just go to the original? It, you know, um, so too with this, it just feels a bit like, you know, this is an artist playing another artist's notes and right. doesn't bring an original point of view to it. Because it, it, well, is, it is aiming to play back to back, minute to second to cut, between yeah. the end of this one and the beginning of the next one. Well, it's so funny. I mean, Ty and I were just talking about, we, before the show started, Ty and I were sort of chatting, and we were talking about the very thing, this idea that, not with the thing, but just in general with art, you know, any kind of art making, any kind of creative enterprise, why, why would you aspire to make films or be an artist if all you really wanted to do was to be, you know, a really great technical uh player and be in a really great cover band. I mean, maybe you just want to play covers, right? And you just want to be in a wedding uh, band or something, right? The wedding singer or something. But I mean, wouldn't it be more fun and wouldn't it be more uh, powerful, more potent somehow to be, um, you know, a band writing original work, writing original songs? And so I think that speaks to your point, Mike. I think it's like, and, and here's the thing. It if, does feel like it falls flat that way. And if I had made 
a prequel to Psycho that showed how he was broken and came to have killed his own mother and end up where they were with an original insight, then I'd have said, well, that was a film worth making. Please don't call it Psycho, call it something else. Um, and I get the homage thing. But the trouble with this film is, it to me, it is so wanting to appeal to the fan base that it falls right. in, in the Comic-Con problem, which is you can take a film to Comic-Con and the fans at Comic-Con will go nuts about it, right? Comic-Con is, Comic-Con is just uh, an intense melting pot of diehard uh, people that make a film a cult. But kind of by definition, a cult film is not one that is widely popular. You don't call Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom a cult film because everybody bloody likes it. And if they don't, they should. It, 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 so this is like a film that was defined by its marginalized interest. It's not a widespread film. So you make this film really, really popular to people that loved it in the 80s surprise surprise a young to under 25 demographic today doesn't want to go see it and quite frankly a young demographic didn't want to go see it when the first bloody one came out which is why um and i didn't even know this but i saw carpenter interviewed it was a youtube clip and he said that i think it was cinema fantastic but i could be wrong it was a it was a magazine that i do remember from 1982 actually ran the thing on the cover saying is this the most hated film of all time and so this was not like not well received, oh, sort of. It was like really hated back then. So I'm kind of thinking, well, if you're going to appeal to a cult group, you're not going to have a very big audience. If you're going to appeal to a cult group by making exactly the same film, and let's face it, Kate ends up in that snowmobile in a frighteningly sort of repetitive way to the guys sitting in front of the burning buildings at the end of Carpenters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yes, they don't go into the spaceship so much in Carpenter's version, but, you know, they're at the spaceship again, just like they were in Carpenter's version. I mean, it just feels like, well, we're hitting the same notes, and it's, it's, it's yeah, as you say, it's like a cover band. Now, that being said, we should move on to the effects, but I do think that that is going to temper the effects because I feel like they wanted... Because I think, I think that was interesting about the 82 one is the fight that happened between the special effects guy, which, who, what was his name? He was the guy that did the howling, right? Um, uh, no, Rob, Rob Bottin. Yeah, right, okay. And the cinematographer who had open warfare, apparently, on whether or not the film should be revealing the monster. The cinematographer wanted it into the light, and obviously the, the SFX guy didn't. He wanted it kind of backlit and, and uh, kind of more in shadows. And I, I certainly thought that the 82 version was really interesting because in that... Uh, classic way we always say the monster's better unseen like it was in Jaws. This was the exact opposite. Where you got to stare mm-hmm. at the darn monster in full light, in long shots with people looking at it without any... I mean, obviously, there was <laughs> the occasional uh, steel jaws eating your arms off chest shot. But, but normally when the alien was dead on the table, it was dead on the table and it didn't, you know... Uh, do much other than that, and it, and you really got to stare at the bugger, and it was obviously well made for those. Yeah, you have to go back and say in that film, which they really do pay so much respects to the sort of original sort of Rob Bottin designs in the film. Uh, in this new version, they, there's so much of kind of literally an homage even to that straight up the work, and it was work done in this case by amalgamated. Dynamics and then image engine for some of the digital shots, but but um, the uh, all the Rob Bottin designs and the the work that was done and the sort of you know classic shot of the the head tearing itself off the body and then sprouting legs and <laughs> scurrying away and stuff. I mean that stuff is just so uh, 
it's so unique. Uh, I've never quite seen anything like it before or since. And I think, uh, you know, it really is, it is the apex of that kind of practical effects work. And, you know, you can look at it now and sort of, like you say, like the, the jaws that open up and bite the guy's hands off as he's trying to do the, uh, what is it, the defibrillator or whatever. But, uh, you know, and some of that stuff's a little bit hokey. But, God, I mean, it's just, it's really harkens back to that time. And it's all something that, you know, it's there, it's on screen, it's well-designed, it's well-sculpted, um, and uh, it and it works, you know. It works for what it is. It's it's scary and it's uh, and it's gross. <laughs> you know, I um, I actually uh, I actually had an opportunity to work really closely with Rob for um, a number of uh, weeks on the very early stages of Mimic when I was working with Guillermo del Toro in 1995, and he was he was a, a very um, uh, I would say that Rob is. Uh, before he's an effects person, he's a he's a a, a, a serious artist. I mean, he mm-hmm. is a master sculptor, and he is a is uh, f- you know fascinated with nature and fascinated with biology. I mean, this is the guy who did the you know the the giant uh, uh, double suit for Legend, the horns that that are, you can photograph them from almost any angle, and they look powerful. I mean, he's he's an extraordinary individual, and I think. Um, the reason that there's so much potency in the Carpenter version is because Rob um, was given uh, by the director the kind of creative freedom to really to go into himself and drive the creative train. It was not a derivative piece. If you put it in the context of mm-hmm. film, it was an original piece. And if anything, he was probably channeling some kind of H.P. Lovecraftian type of uh, sure. material. Yeah. Well, that's, that, why I, uh, that's why I didn't want to start with this premise of the 50s film and then The Carpenters was a remake. Because in effect, The Carpenter film ignored the original film and went to the original novel or novelette. The book, yeah, the source yeah, material. And, and I think, you're, Mike, you're just on, a, on, a, on point there because... And I don't know if it's because so much of it was shot practically, but the 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 framing of the Carpenter film is very um, uh, grounded. The characters themselves kind of reek uh, uh, this this um, this this confusion like they're completely baffled and they're they move very quickly into being very afraid and it's so palatable that when you have these over-the-top moments like the defibrillator breaking the chest and chomping the guy's hands off which you see the stubs and the whole nine yards you know (laughs) uh i think that there's always a moment of levity at the end of those sequences in that particular case you know the 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 cook looks at camera and goes you've got to be kidding you know i mean so you kind of get a little relief because you're like subjected to this horror and then you you need a moment to catch your breath um i think the audiences potentially have changed and i think maybe the shock value is gone i remember when uh, when the carpenter version came out that at the movies that was roger and gene's uh mm-hmm. film review program you know from pbs they reviewed it and they were the main thing they talked about was how over the top gory it was starting with the first sequence where they're sewing up a bullet wound from the you know shooting the attempt at shooting the dog i mean it's right you know, full screen. If you saw it in the theater, it's the gigantic biggest wound I'd ever seen until that point. Yeah, but now you're right. But now you have movies like, you know, Human Centipede or whatever. You yeah, know, like exactly. I mean, most and disgusting, I, like, 
over. But I the think top. It, I would I would almost make the analogy, and I don't know. This is maybe where a little bit of the whole mystery of cinema comes in the 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 the, the magic of the moment, right? I mean, you look at the 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 reactions of the characters in Alien uh, when the chestbuster occurs. You look at the reaction in the characters in the thing, um, and there's a genuineness to it that that really telegraphs. And uh, again, I I mean I don't want um, um, to to uh, to um, be too critical of the actors, but I felt that you it was a little difficult to to understand where they were coming from. They seemed driven by multiple concerns. You know, who's telling the truth? Are we going to fly out? Who's sick? What are we going to do with them? Whereas in the Carpenter's version, it's like, it's, you know, it's 12 little Indians. It's like, we're here one at a time where everybody's going to go. And, right. and it's, it's a different model. It's a, it, it's a different sensibility. And um, I think that the, the, that it was more claustrophobic too because you you know I thought it was interesting moving a little bit towards the effects side that they opened up the film a great deal with this new version you got a sense of place you got a sense of the epic scale of things you know mountains and hmm. you know antennas and, and it opening it up yeah. like it was the sequence outdoors with the creature running around under the floor of the building and, and there was it, it seemed like a much bigger um, stage and I think maybe um, having watched the two together, that that almost worked a little bit uh, in the negative in that um, it didn't have that same kind of incredible sense of claustrophobic, uh, you know, fear. It was more about, like, we've got a lot of decisions to make and who gets to make them and why does this person get to make it and not this person. There was a lot of complexity at work, whereas the Carpenter's thing was very, very direct, um, very, very simplified and streamlined. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I think was really interesting about the Carpenter version, which I found out when I was uh, doing some research, um, is that they actually, for the interior stuff that you're talking about, that sort of claustrophobic soundstage stuff, they actually froze the soundstage. They had it just above zero. Now, they still had to give people hot coffee and stuff to make their breath sort of do the uh, the vapor stuff. But nevertheless, it was actually really, really, really cold on set. It wasn't quite zero. It was just a bit above. Um, which, again, meant that it had to be a sort of not particularly big set because you obviously can't freeze a, a vast uh, space for a production like that. But, uh, like, I kind of liked all that about it. I liked those aspects of it. But I will say this, I, I'm kind of not a huge fan of horror full stop. And I wasn't a huge fan of this film in 82, and I'm not a huge fan of the new thing. Um, I think the opening up thing, like, is is absolutely true. Though I think some of the spaceship shots were really good effect shots in this version, and they were really obviously matte paintings in the last version. And mm-hmm. so, I think you know, there's no doubt about it. Like, you can do more, and there's a need to do more. And if all you had was a couple of spaceship shots on a wide on a non-moving camera today, we'd all cry foul. Um, yeah, and, and you're, you're again. You're, you're. Uh, I thought that there were aspects of the um, the buried ship that were just very smart filmmaking. I mean, uh, I always wondered how in the Carpenter version, you know, you got this big crater and the things you see this hatch open and you know this it, it kind of is a, a matte painting that's sort of cobbled together and isn't very effective. And that might be part of why it works, but uh, it, it's not a photo real presentation of a big spaceship in the ice. And, and I, I thought it was very smart to uh, have the ship 
in the beginning of the new thing, the new version is to have it uncovered as a, under the ice, and then when it gets turned on, you know, it, it melts the ice. And um, I, I thought that was clever. I was mentioning to Matt is that um, um, the production designer uh, Sean Hayworth is a uh, somebody I've worked with in the past. He was a he was uh, on um, uh, Avatar, and I actually uh, called him this morning to alert him to the this show, and he got to telling me quite a bit about. Um, some of the decision making process that was going on with this new version of the thing and it's it's actually he was he was telling me that that they took a lot of information from the carpenter thing and tried to transpose it into the modern version in a kind of homage that's more of what you consider to be an homage than than whether or not the films are kind of duplicating or parallel uh, versions of one another he was saying that um you know like i think there there's an axe that gets you mm-hmm. know she swings an axe it's like a fire axe and and chops it into the wall. Well, in the Carpenter version, they go to, to investigate this, um, you know, this other uh, installation where the Norwegians have their um, laboratory. And you know, on the wall is this axe. And yep. that's supposed to be there from this version. And, and he was saying that they went through and there's some equipment that they push aside when they open the door of the, in the Carpenter version. And they recreated that equipment and put it on set. So those are kind of nice homages. And they, they were careful with the, you know, the design of the, um, the spacecraft to make it so at the end of the like pre-launch melt-off sequence that you would be left with this version that was in the Carpenter thing. And I, I like that kind of stuff. I think it's fun. I oh, know, totally. Um, but, you know, they did that in X-Men First Class. They had lots of little nods to X-Men that mm-hmm. the, anyone that was into it was like chuckling about, right? You know, and they explained a bunch of stuff. And, and it was, you know, it was... But in that, they had two advantages. Firstly, it was a more recent film, so the audience was more likely to have seen it. My point here being that a lot of people that are moviegoers today just are not even weren't weren't even part of the second wave that saw the carpenter version which was the vhs crowd right because it obviously got big on vhs um and i remember going into video stores and it was always on the shelf it was a very distinctive cover and you kind of saw it and and so so people are less familiar, like the axe thing. Like I think that was really cute, but I just wonder how many people would have even got that. And then secondly, the other problem you've got is that the um, the all those little nods and stuff I think are all the icing on a cake. You need to have the cake there first, and the cake has to be that you're kind of really into it, and then you sort of say to a friend later, "Oh, did you notice when they went through the door that that was the thing?" "Oh no, I didn't. Oh, I got to watch it again," kind of thing. Versus, I got nothing else to look at, so I'm just going to look at the axe because I'm kind of bored here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't argue that point at all. And I'm, I, I guess by pointing to it, I'm just uh, looking – I guess it's, an, it's one of the interesting things, again, about cinema is that you have these multiple layers of decision-making processes underway. You know, the cinematographer has his concerns and uh, uh, the set construction people have their concerns. And it's all being managed by the director. And ultimately, it's the director's film. I'm a strong believer in that whole cinema verite school of thought where the director owns it all at the end of the day. And clearly, he was, uh, you know, driving towards something that was, as as I guess we're all, as as we've been talking, you know, it it was more than an homage and it was less than a sequel or a prequel. It was something that was... Well, let's discuss what your point is in terms of the the double-faced Edward and Adam uh, thing, you know, the uh, the split face, because that's that's right at the heart of this, right? Because it's a, it's a central thing in the first film, the right, right. version. I think it was called the Blair Head in the original film, is what they called it. Right, and in this one, it's obviously a major effect sequence. And so, as this mm-hmm. is the VFX show, let's discuss that because that um, 
that is uh, a nowhere to hide kind of a sequence. We we get to watch it in in almost not slow motion, but you know it's not like it all happens in a flash and you turn around and jump cut. It's done. So so Matt, what did you think of that? I I really enjoyed it. I and I think, but I think I enjoyed it in part for the reasons that we were talking about before. Like you know, being a fan of the first film. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan of horror films either, although this is kind of sci-fi horror. It's more like alien to me than, uh, than uh, you know, I don't know what uh, one of those torture porn movies or whatever that people are so into <laughs> these days. But, but, um, but uh, no, I, I really like that effect. And I think, you know, when you look at this movie in terms of, in particular, the, the creature effects, um, which is – really the largest part of it, maybe aside from the ship and then a couple other uh, stunt sequences and stuff like that. But um, the creature effects in general, I think they're kind of, you know, amalgamated dynamics did uh, a host of uh, original uh, practical um, sculpts and and, uh, models that were used uh, in various scenes. And then anytime you see, you know, any huge... uh, sort of transformations and or um, full-bodied aliens. It's kind of the Jurassic Park model, right, where you have the um, the uh, the T-Rex battle, and they said that, right, anytime you saw just part of the T-Rex, odds are it was the Stan Winston animatronic one, and anytime you saw the full-bodied T-Rex lifting its legs and walking, it was the ILM computer-generated one. And I think it's similar in this film, although I do think there are case-specific examples um, like the case of the 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 face uh, sort of merging and sliding sort of in the two mouths converging, which clearly was uh, some CG in there. And I thought they did a really nice job. Uh, Image Engine's work, uh, I believe, they did a really great job of creating materials and uh, animation that felt very much like the original kind of Rob Bottin style uh, classic um, practical effects and and you know I guess if you're looking at it from through the lens of you know today's contemporary effects I wonder if and, and I, I think it's hard for me to be objective about this I wonder if that style of animation that style of movement and that style of transformation in terms of how the animation itself worked I wonder if that's as effective to a contemporary audience who has no frame of reference maybe for uh, or even no nostalgia for the 82 version I wonder if it's as effective I thought it looked great and I thought it worked great because I feel like I know what they were trying to do and so in that respect I I enjoyed it I thought it was cool but um yeah it's it's difficult to say I I I don't think looking at it uh there was only really one or two shots in the whole movie that I thought were problematic and, and, uh, but they weren't creature shots. So I thought that transformation sequence was really pretty cool. I kind of liked it. It was so bizarre. I have to say, I, one of the things I'm really upset about with this film, uh, is that there seems to be a trend in the marketing to imply that it was all done pretty much with, with onset and it's all, you know, physical effects and it's all SFX and they've really been, sort of saying that almost as if it, that would make it more authentic and better. And I actually went to Image Engine at Sidgraph and sat with the guys that did this. And I can tell you, like, a lot of the practicals were replaced with digital. So, yes, yeah. there were practicals on set, but tons of the time there was either tennis balls and laser pointers for eyeline or there was 
a practical thing there that just looked hokey and it got replaced. Now, it served a purpose, don't get me wrong, because you'd quite often need a physicality for something moving through shot or there was something on fire that you wanted to fly across the room. But but to imply that it was uh, an, a practical is to basically try and leverage off the, the that 82 uh, in-camera um, nostalgia and sort of claim, no, 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 this is really good because it's, you know, diehard and authentic and we did it for real. And I, I hate that because at, at its heart, it's bullshit because I can tell you right now, an alien made of sort of rubber and bits of goop on a table is no more real. It's no more an actual alien than a digital one. It's sure. not, it's not, I don't get this thing. And so this kind of, no, no, it's not digital. It's all, you know, real bullshit. They're not, they're not real Norwegians. They're actors. <laughs> they're not on a bloody <laughs> glacier. They're in a soundstage, you know I mean? Hello. So, uh, I think image engine did a great job. I think the, um, the alien stuff is really icky the way it should yeah. be. Uh, so I think it was in line. I mean, I, whether I agree or disagree with the pathological desire to match the 82 version, they certainly did match it in my opinion. What do you think, Ty? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, like um, I, I was seeing it in the right context and I think after this show tonight, I'll have to give some additional thought to just how much time has transpired in my lifetime between films and, and I, you know, maybe I could find some young audiences and uh, some, maybe I could access some young people and question them a little bit about these, these very topics because it is very interesting. Um, and also, most people that are working as directors in Hollywood, even young directors today, they've, they've seen all this stuff. So they have a different vantage point as well. They have a different pedigree of, uh, of being an audience member. So it's interesting to hear your points about um, you know, who's seen it, who's not seen it. I, I would like to go out on a limb a little bit and say that uh, uh, some of the cinematic decisions, I think, that are made when you're dealing with practicals, and I've been on set with with practical creatures and practical you know uh big set pieces and stuff is that on the day when you have your crew there you oftentimes have to make uh like real production decisions based upon the needs of a minority or a very small group of people that are going to be running cable rigs or running you know wire and uh pumping smoke or pumping fluids and those kinds of things and i have a suspicion that oftentimes with a good director those kind of calamities cause uh uh, moments on set that are kind of what make these sequences original in their own way, and with digital sure. as a as a as a backup as a, a now with digital if you 're on set with a lot of uh, and you have a digital uh, VFX supervisor there and they have a lot of you know they know they 've signed up to do a lot of uh, additional work beyond just the hero work they 're going to have to do clean up and they 're going to have to do wire removal or cable removal or rig removal or even an actor removal or whatever you know you can you can fly a lot more freely you 're not going to you're not going to necessarily find the most creative cinematic solution to the problem because you can just say, screw it. You know, we'll just use a, a rubber, we'll just wrap this rubber alligator in some green material and use it as a monster. And then later we'll put the monster in. So I wonder if this isn't even a larger conversation about how has the freedoms offered to, um, to, to modern directors and modern production, how is that somehow looked upon as being um, the, the solution maker? 
Uh, yeah, whereas, uh, right. you know, yeah, really like, there's that whole yeah. adage, you know, they say that, uh, you know, real true creativity comes from limits and not from total freedom, you know, and mm-hmm. I think that that's true in a lot of ways, you know, that kind of restraint and those kind of constraints that are placed upon the artist in whatever uh, medium you're working in, I think can yield you know, amazing results when you're forced to find shortcuts and workarounds and tricks and cheats to make something work as opposed to having, you know, carte blanche, like total free uh, reign to do whatever. You know, I think oftentimes, uh, you know, those limits are the things that bring about the most creative and and dynamic and memorable solutions. Yeah. Just one other thing I think just before we sort of go on too much, we don't want to also, I think, over nostalgic frame the 82 version as the be-all and end-all of visual effects because for my money, and I, I sort of was conscious of this at the time, I mean, this was coming out a couple of years, maybe three years after Alien, obviously mm-hmm. and three mm-hmm. years before Aliens with Cameron, um, but it was also coming out what, about the same time as Blade Runner. So, and yeah, similar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, I know it didn't go well at the box office in part because it was coming out almost the year before or the year after E.T., um, yeah. and that's often cited as people wanted cuddly aliens, not not evil ones. But, uh, look, I think it was, it's the, you know, Carpenter's films are successful, but I don't know that we should pretend like the 82 was, you know, hallowed ground for S- uh, special effects, because I don't think it was. I think it was good, but not, you know, well, Blade Runner-esque. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't quarrel with you, uh, too too much, except for one particular vein, which I, I think I was the perfect age to see the thing. You know, I was I was seeing it out at just at the end of high school, or you know, right after high school or something. And I'd seen a lot of movies, and and this was a celebration of a kind of sensibility. Uh, the Carpenter's version was it was was actually a movie designed around a certain kind of novel sensibility that. Um, was really different than other films. I mean, it it didn't feel like other films. It felt very different. Now, does that make it the best of of the craft? I mean, does that mean that the 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 the, the these practical uh, you know creature effects were the best of the, that were ever done before or after? I mean, American Werewolf in London had come around. I think well, that's a very similar time frame. You know, it had amazing yeah. animatronics in it. Legend, as I mentioned earlier, but this almost seemed to purposefully go to this. Like again, like an H.P. Lovecraftian, some kind of it was channeling something that I hadn't seen before, and the way that it was structured, the the kind of incredible calamity, the nightmarish calamity, and the way that the characters um, were uh, spun by these activities, by by this unknown thing, it, it was very unique. And maybe that piece just doesn't translate onto VCR or translate onto DVD or translate over time because it. I know that that when I saw it, it's and you're right, you're, or something. yeah, very much. And but but Mike's point is right. I don't think a lot of people would have been turned on by it either. I think. Well, but think the other it, thing, though, I think you you have to make a distinction, though. And I think you know one thing that you know, Mike, you mentioned Blade Runner uh, in comparison to the thing in terms of like sort of overall special effects. But I do think you know it's important to remember too. Uh, you know, even when uh, you know, like Ty and I met at ILM in the early. 1990s and so you know when i was there we they still had two different um there was the computer graphics group but there was also uh, a model shop and there was still a creature shop and they were 
somewhat together, but they were somewhat separate, you know. And I think when you look at a show like Blade Runner and all of, you know, Doug Trumbull's work and, uh, and all the miniature work that was done for Blade Runner, it's really, it's model work, you know. I mean, it's, it's models more than anything else. And you look at the thing, and while I think there are some miniatures and some models in it, for the most part, it's a, it's a creature show, you know. And that was a distinction, I think, that was okay. somewhat well, more... Um, give me, okay, so Alien is out three years before this so it's out enough that you are even in pre-pro on this and you've seen it and who wouldn't Mm -hmm. have seen it if they were on this so do you think there's a argument that it's on the same level as the creatures in alien i I use the singular i I, I guess i sort of think that's uh I mean, you know, okay, it's a fair uh, question, I guess, but I wonder if it's a fair comparison in that you're sort of dealing with two... I, I mean, I, you know, it's interesting, actually, to watch those two movies together. I did that last year, and I watched the the 82 version of the thing in Alien around the time when uh, the Duncan Jones movie Moon came out. I was really fascinated with these small, confined spaces and this idea of, you know, having trying to control an environment to make, like... Uh, a small budget looked like a big budget, although, of course, Alien, I think, did have quite an enormous budget. But, you know, the Giger uh, designs for the Alien, you know, is something wholly different than, you know, Rob Bottin's group and uh, that came up with for the thing. And 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 I think the, the conceit okay, but, of but, okay, well, the be, genre... All right, but I'll, I'll reduce it down even further then. <laughs> I'll reduce it down even further. Okay. Chest explodes, alien comes out, chest opens up, shark teeth bites off arms. I mean, that's about as close a one-to-one comparison as I think we can get within two or three years of each other and alien-led. You really going to tell me that they, that they are matching? I mean, come well, on. I, 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 think, no, I really, it's a question of taste, though, too, in a way. I mean, obviously, Ridley Scott, you know, is a much... He's he's got much he's got better taste you know it's sort of like <laughs> you know it's the Steve Jobs Bill Gates you know it's like you know uh, wow. Ridley Scott would be Steve Jobs and Bill Gates would be the John Carpenter you know like although well, maybe not Bill Gates maybe like uh, I don't know some smaller like uh, Compaq or something you know like I just think you know uh, Carpenter's a different he's got a different sensibility a different aesthetic and it's kind of it is kind of cheesy and kind of I'm not down know, on Carpenter I love some of Carpenter's films I'm just not a huge huge fan of this one not that I hate it I just not a well huge I, fan. I think I would go I, the way I would frame it is probably that and and I think your point is it, it's a contextual point because you're right about the analogies I mean you can say that this they're both kind of science fiction horror. They both kind of stem from these claustrophobic spaces. You know, that's the environment. People don't know what they're dealing with. Of course you can but, – but they're not similar films. Okay. I mean ultimately they're not similar films. I mean the, the alien is, is all shadows. Nothing is seen. You don't see anything. And then finally – and actually and, – and I've seen Alien probably more than any picture that it's in my lifetime. I, I, know, project, I know projected I saw it the, the, in 1979. I know I went to the theater at least like 18 times. I guarantee you I, I didn't see the thing but maybe the one time. So I don't know that the, it's necessarily – Well, you definitely voted with other. your hard-earned pocket money then. Yeah, totally. But I think that um, – I think that they're, they're – the 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 carpenter film is a celebration of a certain kind of of expression it's a celebration of this sort of 
biological, transformative, H.P. Lovecraft, uh, Dante's Inferno, suffering, on camera, you know, look at the human, go through this contortion kind of a deal. Aliens is really a movie about hiding. It's about hiding things from the audience, hiding things from the characters, and it's it's more like um, it's all dark shadows. And you believe that there's a biological um, component at work that has an identity, whereas in the thing, in both versions of the thing, the le- this version, the the newest version, and the Carpenter, you can't get a handle on what you're dealing with. It, it, you they, the reason the alien doesn't make a showing is because uh, Ridley Scott carefully uh, reveals it over the course of a two-hour movie. Um, in in um, the Carpenter version and also this new version, it's really more like an orgy of gore. It's an orgy of of transformation and and flesh, and and it, that's what it's about. So, you know, the bigger question is, how does that fit into the matrix of cinema, and is there a viable place for that type of film in the contemporary context? Uh, I think it is a film that attracts a youth audience. I think the Carpenter version became as popular as it was because it was great to watch with girls and dates and, you know, everyone would scream and then you'd be all crazy and the jokes on the screen, like the, like I said, where people turn to the camera practically and go, you know, what the hell was that? I mean, that's what your brain is saying. So it, it's a sophomoric kind of a film in some level, but yeah. it also has a certain potency, like a good, you know, um, uh, like a good, uh, I guess, romantic film does, where it's just a simple tale that's supposed to stimulate a certain part of your, con- you know, of your uh, sensibility, a certain part of your consciousness. I, 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 I've got to say, I just love you too. That this, this, that you can be describing it in terms of romantic films. I, I honestly, I feel nothing but I feel nothing but love for you guys right now. Uh, I'm going to read you something from the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, nearly 65% of those buying tickets to the movie, referring to the new version of The Thing, were over the age of 25, whereas it used to be that moviegoers under 25 powered this genre. And by that genre, I think we, we agree it's a kind of a sci-fi horror um, without being the full-on, you know, mega blood fest. And it goes on to point to other underperforming uh, films which haven't grossed as well as people would have liked, including Fright Night, Apollo 18, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, uh, Shark Night 3D. Um, now, there is an exception to this, which is Paranormal Activity, which I think was made for a buck fifty and has grossed about $60 billion so far. Um, but apart from Paranormal 3, I'm joking with those numbers, uh, but the rest of those numbers are true. Um, the... the Apart from that, generally speaking, this uh, kind of film isn't finding a particularly good audience, um, and we can loosely call it a horror film. I mean, do we think that there's anything to be read into that? Do we feel that this um, that this genre is kind of milked, and or that uh, the under twenty five male isn't just interested in going to see this because they're going to see it on DVD anyway, and they don't see this to be something they need to queue up for, kind of cinematically. I mean, I think I think all of the above. I mean, I think that there's certainly some cannibalization that's going on when the like. I mean, I was shocked. We just didn't we just do a show on Captain America like mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, like, and now Captain America is coming out on video. Right. I mean, wasn't it? I mean, was isn't in town? You know. I mean, it, there's there's a um, uh, there's something that's going on. I think across the board in terms of what's going uh, and playing in cinemas. And you know, there was a talk about a, a film. 
I was reading this in Variety. I think there was talk about a film. Um, God, I can't remember the name now. That was slated to come out, uh, and they were going to release it simultaneously in the theaters. The heist uh, film, uh, the Tower. The heist, heist right? Yeah. And they were going to release it um, uh, on direct, like pay per view, mm-hmm. where you could pay, uh, in two like, markets. Yep. Yeah, right. And you could pay like 60 bucks or something like that mm-hmm. and have a bunch of friends over and watch this Eddie Murphy movie, right? And um the uh the show exhibitors uh the the people who run the theaters here in the in the US anyway, uh maybe internationally too, I don't know, but they uh they put the kibosh on it and they said, "No way, we are not we are not doing that. Like we're not going to show it at all then in the theater if that's what you're going to do." And so they're fighting for their survival and to keep, you know, putting butts in the seats and people buying popcorn and stuff. But I think, you know, you are seeing some wholesale changes take place in the movie business in general. And I think you're going to probably see this happen, except for maybe the huge tentpole film, the big zeitgeist movie, a film comes on, comes along like an Avatar or maybe, an, you know, Iron Man 1 or, you know, whatever the, the big movie was of do, this last year. Do we but think- um, I, I wonder if... If do we think we're entering a period of do we I, I think we may be doing entering a period of what I'm gonna call event television type programming in cinemas. Like you know when it became that the big theme for television was that it either had to be sports or some kind of event driven thing to get people to a set when it was on, and that was one of the few ways you were gonna get them because the films that we're describing, Shark Knight three D, whatever, uh, uh, these are not, you know, the Avengers sure. uh, kind of mega franchises, they're not the big, big ones. So unless you are the big ones, the big, big tentpole, you're kind of hollowing out that, and that that mid-ground of, which I think is very much where the original thing ended up, is a, a, either a direct-to-video or a just a limited cinema, but it's going to make its money in DVD and and that's what you have to kind of confine yourself to. Not that that many things make that much money in DVD as much as they used to, but it just doesn't feel like like any of these films are drawing people into a cinema. You have to have a big thing to draw them in. Now, normally that would be a visual effects thing, as we know, most of the films mm-hmm. that draw. Uh, but I wonder, does it, does it bother us from a VFX point of view? Because all these films I'm kind of naming do have a component of visual effects in them, that those films aren't drawing, or are they going to be fine because the visual effects... There's a lot of visual effects in television now. I mean, it's not like it has to be done in cinema. Yeah. I mean, I, I well, just don't. I, I I don't believe that the audience, quite honestly, is that captivated by. They're captivated by spectacle more than visual effects. I mean, I think some of the most sophisticated visual effects work is actually the stuff you don't see. You know, I mean, the seamless integration of set extensions and you know, just really amazing stuff that that keeps the industry moving uh, in a direction of invention and, and coming up with better tools and greater solutions to problems. And then there's a, just like what Matt was saying earlier about ILM having these various structures, model, miniatures, uh, creature, you know, uh, digital. Now it's like digital has subdivisions too. You know, they have, right. they have basically matte artists who are doing lots of set extensions. There's animation. 
information, which is, and these things are all finding their own way and their own paths. So I, I, I'm, my sense is, and what I, I have two thoughts on this box office issue. One is that this is just the ebb and flow of normal humanity and entertainment. I mean, I've, I've gone through two cycles in my lifetime where box office went way, way down. And I think part of that is a do is that even though people are born you know, every month of every year, they kind of are blocked together in, in like five to six year groups. I mean, you, don't, you know, kids kind of are blocked together by their demographic and, and then youth and so forth. And I think sometimes that gets out of sync with the production of certain forms of entertainment. And, you know, a lot of kids get oversaturated with Westerns. Was When I was a kid, I would never have gone to see a Western. Forget it. It just was not on my list because I'd grown up seeing so much Westerns on television, Bonanza, and my mom loved Westerns, and it was Westerns this and Cowboy that, and everyone was playing that stuff. And so for 10 years, I mean, I had no interest until, of course, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly came along, and then all of a sudden there was this resurgence of Westerns that were these spaghetti Westerns, and then that all goes away again. And, you know, who knows when the Western will arise, I mean, yet unforgiven, but sometime there might be this, this big Western phase, and now it's a vampire phase. You know, I mean, there was this... When I was a kid, again, I mean, horror movies were really ex- – people did not see Hammer films. They weren't seeing Christopher Lee except that it had, you know, you know, scantily clad women and guys would tell their friends to see it because there's biting and all that jazz. But then now it's all <laughs> mainstream again. So I'm not so sure that this isn't just a, a synchronization issue that, that we're out of sync in some way. And five years down the line, it, it could fall back in. What my hope is is that – Maybe the the demographic for moviegoers is shifting because again in the seventies the movie demographic the primary ticket buyer was somebody between the ages of uh, twenty and thirty five. When I turned seventeen, could see R rated films. I didn't want to see any movies that were not rated because I wanted to see adult films. I wanted to see films that had themes that I thought were the next thing you know to move me forward in my life. I, you know, Taxi Driver and you know these Midnight Express. And, yeah, yeah, all those things. I yeah. wanted to. See those and I wouldn't go. I would never have gone to see Shark's Tale or you know I don't know any of those. I probably wouldn't have been too stoked about seeing uh, you know superheroes either. But but it's all about the demographic, the makeup of that group, and how the the Hollywood system responds. And I think that it's in my sense. Because I know ticket sales continue to rise. I mean, I don't know what this year is looking like, but but ticket sales are still pretty 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 high up. So, you know, taking if the if it's a shift towards people wanting to see, wanting to go to the cinema as part of an evening out, and 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 uh, it's going to change a little bit. I think that's awesome to see. It would be great to see the front runner movies, you know, be slightly different for a while. And and uh, one last point on that is that there's been this theory in Hollywood or this theme that independent filmmaking especially horror-driven, going back to Night of the Living Dead, that it had an exclusivity to it. Like, if you could punch out a horror movie, you could almost always make your money back. Well, that model doesn't work when you start getting into big-budget big budget, um, horror films. And I think that's become very clear. You know, you make a you make a eighty million dollar horror movie, you've got to be on a you've got to be hitting a lot of audience. Whereas if you make a paranormal or Blair Witch project back in the day, or even before that, Night of the Living Dead, these movies that would be made, uh, you know, for you know nothing, and then they would make. Yeah. I, I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is a fact. This would be an interesting thing to look up. But I actually read the most successful film franchise in history is The Children of the Corn. They made like nine of them. <laughs> Each of them was made for like three million, and they all grossed like oh, twenty-two God. million. You know, twenty. You figure you make for an investment of three to four million, you make twenty-five to thirty million, or whatever the numbers are, and you do it nine times. That's like a big giant blockbuster. 
So I think it could be a, a synchronization issue. I hope it's really something that might change things up, but I'm not sure. Do we think that any of the visual effects in, and, and say away from the plot now, any of the visual effects in this new film were substandard? Yeah, uh, Actually, yeah, there was one or two shots, uh, one in particular, that I, it was at the very beginning of the film, and uh, it's, it was a composite uh, issue, I think, more than anything else. It's a, a shot where the snow cat is there right before they discover the alien ship. They're like, he's telling some like joke, you know, really bad joke. And, and uh, you're sort of waiting for the, uh, you know, the obvious thing to happen, which is, you know, something's going to go wrong or they're going to, you know, crash or <laughs> whatever. And they crash through the snow and they start sliding down into this crevasse uh, in the ice and the um, the snowcat gets wedged in between the two walls of the crevasse, mm-hmm. and there's there's a shot uh, looking up. Once it stops, there's a shot looking up at it, and it's a obviously a composite of I don't know if it's a practical or a digital model. I assume it's a digital composite. And uh, my first the first time I saw it, I was I, I, it was like one of those cringeworthy comps where the black levels on the um, the snowcat itself were really flashed, and they didn't. It was not comped well into the surrounding environment, and it really stood out as like a kind of like a, a shitty comp. <laughs> and the other shot that I was going to mention that isn't wasn't bad, but it just it it was. I thought it was an interesting, um, maybe an oversight or a stylistic choice. Was I believe it was one of the digital map paintings of the exterior of the camp. And it was either at dawn or dusk. And so the sun was coming down and there was this, and it's really a nice looking shot of the camp. And there's a huge lens flare. And every other lens flare in the movie is anamorphic, but this one lens flare was flat. And I, it stuck out and I was <laughs> like, oh, that's weird. And, and, but, uh, but of all the other effects in the movie, all the creature effects, all the animation, um, uh, and all the, you know, all the comps, all the, um, the lighting on all the creatures, I really felt that the rest of the show, and I think it was probably largely the work of Image Engine, um, I thought it was really a solid body of work, and I found uh, very little, actually, that I could fault. I thought there was very little that was substandard with regards to the creature. It was really just uh, a couple of shots that I don't know... uh, It just looked like a couple of, um, you know, comp-related issues, but nothing really out of the ordinary it wasn't like any i didn't think there was like huge groundbreaking work in this show no but it was a pretty small budget i mean this film is rumored to have a budget of around 35 million which is pretty bloody small that is really small yeah um and i think yeah i think the special effects guys and the uh rigging guys who rigged you know things flying through walls on fire and image engine and i think there was uh, i think uh, i'm going to say Dr. X did some stuff as well. Is that right? Uh, Mr. X, sorry? Did some Mr. stuff. Mr. X. Uh, I can note it on the titles, I think. But anyway, I think yeah, they all did a really good job. I mean, this is, this is interesting because it's environment work and it's creature work for Image Engine, and I think they did a really good job on it. But yeah, it wasn't. It's not uh, a big budget film. Certainly. We should the, mention uh, with a twist, too, another production. I was about to say that. Did, their breathing the effects breath were much effects. better than it was in. <laughs> in you know, uh, it's also. Um, I have to say, just because you know, I was—I've been in the visual effects business for for a long enough period of time to 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 remember how they would break down scripts and and how 
the budgeting was done, especially in the early digital era, you know, it was just things were so hard and it was so complicated that sometimes just just seeing a helicopter shot in a like some of those helicopter shots in the beginning, just big giant vistas of ice and and what I know must have been digital helicopters. Um, you know, it's amazing. It's just it's stunning. I mean, you don't even think twice about it. And 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 you know, you think, did they rent that? Did they go out and you know, shoot that, but then you think, no, it's probably a comp, and it, it was probably done digitally. And it's just, I, I, I always, I always want to remember how awesome that stuff is when it's done, so you don't even think about it. And even Matt's example, that snowcat sequence, um, is actually, I thought there was, you know, I was looking for it as because it was obviously such big, giant vistas of empty snow, but. Um, you know that stuff's still pretty tricky to get it to done right, and so one one bad comp, uh, you know, is or a couple is is a pretty pretty good strike record. I thought this sequence in a couple of shots inside the interior of the ship at the end, there was one particular moment they were seeing some kind of alien device that looked like a, you know, looked like a Tetris or something, and. I remember yeah. <laughs> feeling like that was from another movie, you know, <laughs> like I, I didn't know if it fit in the shot or if it was in there properly. It was dimensional or purely luminous. I was just so I don't know if that I don't know what that was. But um, I have to say, you know, the image engine also did work on District 9. So I'd have to say right mm-hmm. now, if you had a low budget alien film, when I buy, low by I mean like sort of moderate, not, you know, stupidly low, not, not like, you know, $100,000. You'd have to be thinking image engine would be pretty high on your list of places to go to, wouldn't you? I mean, they seem to produce really good effects that are that are at least punching their weight, if not above their weight. Because you know, we're not critical of this as if it's they're like kind of hokey. They're, so our criticism has all been around the fact that they looked like the '82 version and didn't move enough away from it. I'm not hearing you guys saying that you thought that the film felt cheap and nasty in any way, shape, or form. No, no, I, the I thought the production thing... value was quite high on the whole thing. I mean, I yeah, I would I, agree. I felt that it had a really high production value. In fact, and again, I know that um, uh, it's not necessary to point to one thing or the other, but I felt it that the the environments and the creature work was at a certain level, and the and that the story and the cast weren't there. And I think that the combination really was why the the sum of the parts was lagging for me. And I think Matt said it in the first five minutes, you know, you needed that standout performer to rally everybody together. And I think that was missing, regardless of who the people were or what the deal was. There was no central magnet to 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 see the film through their their actions with. It was an ensemble thing. Yeah, one other thing, too, I was going to say, uh, problem-wise, and this maybe was just unique to the theater I saw it in. It probably was, actually. I saw it DLP, so it was digital projection. And uh, there was nobody in the theater, and I sat you know, in a perfect viewing uh, position within the theater. And um, the uh, there was an issue that I think would be related to the texture of the screen that the image was projected on. And I was curious if you guys had any similar experiences, but um, the in some of the opening shots, the huge sort of snow environments, the big vistas where you're following, you know, the helicopter and, or you're in the helicopter and you're seeing uh, the camp as they're coming into view. There, there are these large tracking shots um, where you see huge swaths of just white, and but there's some uh, small detail right that you can make out uh, on the ground, and as that was panning and moving across, uh, it was so 
I guess, low contrast and so bright that uh, I saw the static texture of the projection screen. <laughs> I, I have, I have experienced that. Yeah, I didn't. And it was really it on this, weird. But, and it, yeah, yeah. Look, it, it made it look like at first I was like, "What the?" You know, I was like, "Is there like static grain all over the whole thing?" And it took me a second to realize what it was that I was looking at. But that's a projection-related issue. Yeah, it I, is. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I've seen that in screens too. I, I I think that you know if you've ever caught a screen that's been repaired and you see a seam or something, you, you can never take your eyes off. Of it. Oh, or a yeah. bug that lands, you know, yeah. ten feet right. from the top on the right. Yeah, it was so distracting, and I was really frustrated with that. But whatever, that's Charlottesville, Virginia, for you, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, you're throwing a lot of light, a big white softbox, basically. And after a while, yeah. I think there is a point where you just start seeing the texture on the screen. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. We're going to have to sort of wind up, I think, because we're kind of near the end of the show. Um, was there any points that you wanted to make that I haven't uh, touched on, uh, Matt? Uh, not really. The only other sort of anecdotal thing I thought would be kind of fun just to mention, and if anybody wants to look it up, it's kind of an interesting sort of web journey you can go on searching for this stuff. But um, right around the time that this film was going into production, um, you know, we talked about it was kind of up against E.T. And, uh, but Spielberg apparently had been working on a movie uh, prior to E.T. that he had been considering doing for some time. And I believe the working title was called Night Skies. And Rick Baker uh, and his group were commissioned to do a bunch of work on these alien designs um, for this Night Skies project. And it was going to be a, kind of a, a scary alien a la the thing and then at some point that project was canned and he went ahead and made et um which wound up being in sort of direct competition uh with this movie and of course uh cleaned its clock as it were mm-hmm. um as we discussed earlier but it's kind of interesting to go and look at some of the um do a web search for night skies and uh, rick baker and see if you can't find some of that stuff online i mean there's some it's kind of fun to see Anyway, <laughs> just a little anecdote. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the only thing that um, I would point to that was interesting is having just watched the the Carpenter uh, the Carpenter picture uh, like the week before is when you when you and and that's uh, the score of that is is really great. It's Ennio uh, uh, Morricone, and yeah. um, when they go to the very end, uh, I'm not giving anything away, I suspect, but at the end of this picture, when it's kind of when they when the pieces fall into the place of the new of the new picture at the end when the pieces fall into place and you see the kind of genesis of what will become the carpenter movie they bring in the the carpenter thing theme you know just the this kind of bum 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 you know this kind of low low or orchestral tone and i actually wanted to go from that home back home and like watch the carpenter one thing because that that was a that that was sort of made me you know i don't know it just kind of struck a chord of like now we've got all the pieces lined up so i i found it i found it uh I guess I would use the word charming in that regard, but uh, I think I think that I may suffer from a bit of the uh, nostalgic uh, uh, haze that you've been pointing to, Mike, in, for the last uh, for the last hour. Okay, I'll open up and confess at risk of being labelled some kind of uh, Nancy boy kind of uh, loser. But <laughs> the reason that I don't particularly like the thing, any of them really, is that 
bloody mean to dogs, and I really like ah. dogs, and I think it's a cardinal rule. You can kill as many people as you like, but you're not allowed to kill the dog, especially not the dog that's faithful servant of man in polar region. And I'm mm. sorry, you've crossed the line when you shoot the dog, and I, I hated it um, in the first film when they kept on killing the bloody dogs, and I didn't like it when the first thing that that suffered in this one, you know, after the ice thaw kind of jump out of the thing. And I mean, it's just like, what is it with these people hating dogs? Has anyone got a dog? Have you seen, I mean, have you seen old, old yeller, Mike? I, I, I'm just sorry. A dog just is about the nicest creature. And I just, I just movies that are not nice to dogs. are just not movies I want to see. I'm going to go and watch that movie about the guy who left his dogs in Antarctica and came back later and they'd survived. And I love that film. Um, <laughs> God, I can't remember the name of it now, but yes, it was about 10 years ago they made this film. The guy had to leave the uh, the dogs in the winter in um, in Antarctica and he comes back and they managed to make it through. And I, you know, I teared up in that movie. So I've got to say that don't be mean to dogs if you want a good review from me. Um, well, that's it really. Um, guys, uh, where can people uh, follow you and uh, and track you down and uh, and find out more about what you're up to? And I'll start with you, Matt. Where, where's... Uh, uh, I'm. You can always find me uh, at Virginia Commonwealth University, where I am a professor of uh, visual effects and computer graphics in the School of the Arts. And you can find me at mattwallen.com or on Twitter at mattwallen. I love that you're a real professor because we call ourselves props over at <laughs> FX PhD, and uh, and I always expect you're going to clean my clock with that remark. Um, Ty, what about you? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I, I have my site always, uh, alieninsect.com. You can see a little example of my work there. And uh, if you feel like reaching out, there's a, a link to an email address. And I'm also somewhat active on Facebook. And you can just uh, search for Ty Rubin, uh, Ty Rubin Ellingson, and uh, see what's going on there. I know we can't discuss what you've done most recently, but I think you were hinting before the show that I could ask you about some stuff that's not the most recent stuff you've done, but just before that. Is that possible? What we yeah, do? yeah. Um, this past spring, I, I was fortunate enough to get the call from uh, Guillermo del Toro to go uh, do uh, conceptual design work on his new picture, uh, Pacific Rim, which is actually uh, uh, right now headquartered up in Pinewood Studio at the same uh, location where the thing was, was done last year, I guess. Uh, and then... Prior to that, I did some uh, work uh, in the early part of the year with Neil Blumkamp on his new movie, Elysium, which doesn't come out until next year, I believe. And so it's been a pretty busy year thus far. And I'm, I'm actually now focusing in on some personal projects uh, that are outside of the film world. So um, it's, been, uh, it's been a great year. Sounds really interesting. Elysium is something, something I've been looking forward to. I, uh, I think I don't know much about it yet, but I look forward to uh, discovering it. Well, look, thanks so much for being with us, guys. It's been a terrific show, um, really enjoyable. So thank you both. Thank you. Um, and thank, thank you, you guys for listening to the show. Um, we are stunned at how successful the podcasts have been getting. And uh, I'm about, as I say, to go to the US. Um, we're going to try and get another one in relatively soon. Um, and I believe the next one we're going to go for is the film Anonymous. Uh, but I can see on the board that uh, Immortals and a few other things are down for upcoming VFX shows. Um, this is one that's been obviously part uh, retro, partly new. And we're actually thinking of doing one of those around uh, the film In Time and uh, and uh, Gattaca. So that would be another one of these sort of dual ones. So let us know what you think about that on Twitter. I'm Mike Seymour uh, or the VFX show. Um, if you like these dual kind of shows where we 
compare and contrast and stuff, let us know. If you don't, let us know. Uh, and also, we know that retro shows are incredibly popular, but um, we do appreciate uh, your input. And quite frankly, we do model the shows after stuff that you guys send us on email and uh, post in the comment field on FX Guide and, of course, uh, comment on Twitter. I want to thank um, our producers who put the show together, edit it, but also do our research and stuff, the great guys. Uh, and, and again, as I say, just thank you guys for supporting the show so incredibly well. We're kind of stunned at, at uh, how popular it is and I mentioned I'm going to the States well the reason I said that is last time I was in the States almost every time I went to a facility uh, to do an interview about something they'd grab me and pull me aside because I'd made some comment on this show and they wanted to argue the point <laughs> with me which uh, always very nicely and always very complimentary and I think the you know, there's a kind of a respect thing that we don't just slam things for slamming sake. And similarly, they're very keen to discuss it. So I, I'm, I'm bracing myself <laughs> for being pulled apart for comments I may have made uh, over the last six months. But look, thanks so much, guys. And uh, as I said, we'll uh, see you uh, as we have been trying to do every couple of weeks. Uh, and um, just check it out on uh, fxguide.com. Until next time, I'm Mike Zimmer. See you. Any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.